Father in heaven, we are so thankful for what you've done. And yet, God, I have a feeling that my heart, that each of our hearts, needs to grasp a little bit more fully, a little bit more deeply, the incredible gift of the cross. So God, just now in the silence of our own hearts, we want to ask that you would speak to us, that you would open our eyes through your word, that we would see a more beautiful picture of your love as displayed on the cross, and that that would stir our hearts to greater thankfulness than ever before. Thank you, Jesus that this is a prayer that you delight to answer. We just pray as we come to the conclusion of these 40 days that it wouldn't be the conclusion of our fixing our eyes on the cross to run with endurance the race that is set before us because of the love that you stir in our hearts. Lord, may that love be deepened today together in your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. As they rushed down the road, the fire was on either side of them, and you've maybe seen pictures of this over the past few weeks. He was driving his daughter as fast as he could when suddenly they came to a traffic jam. And when they came to that traffic jam, they were no longer able to to continue. And suddenly the police officers told uh, everyone around there, they yelled to everyone to get out of their cars and to begin to run. And they said, we're not going to be able to get out by driving. And so everybody, you need to begin to run from the fire. So Jamie looked back to the back seat and he saw his daughter there. And his daughter, with fear on her face, said, Daddy, am I going to die? Daddy, am I going to die? What does that do to a father's heart? Those of you that are dads, those of you that are parents, what would that do to your heart in that moment to hear your daughter cry out and say, Daddy, am I going to die? What is the heart of a father for a child that is at risk, for a child that is on the brink of catastrophe? Turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 12. In John chapter 12, we find this fascinating chapter that in the end brings us to a conclusion that shows us the heart of our dad, the heart of our father in heaven for us who are on the brink of death, who are on the brink of catastrophe on this broken planet. We've been going through different vignettes about the cross over the past few weeks. If you've missed any of them, I encourage you just to go and check them out. It's been fascinating for me just to look at different stories throughout the Bible that I hadn't thought about before, how clearly they reveal God's love, how clearly they reveal the cross, how clearly they they help me to understand what the cross is all about. So if you get a chance to go back and listen to those, feel free to do so. But John chapter 12 In John chapter 11, God has healed Lazarus. Jesus went to that tomb. He's the resurrection and the life. And he told Lazarus to come out of the tomb. And that miracle was the crowning act of Jesus' ministry. And from there, you find that people are beginning to believe and mighty things are beginning to happen and others are not so happy about it. Immediately following that, just a few days afterwards, you find in John chapter 12, the triumphal entry takes place. This is on Sunday, and Jesus is going to the cross on Friday. This is just moments before he's going to be crucified. He's come to the end of his ministry. 
And as he begins to go towards Jerusalem, people gather palm branches and they begin to give him praise. They begin to do something like you did this morning. To say, wow, God is really good. We're so thankful for Jesus. Maybe you had lepers at the front of that crowd who said, hey, this guy, he deserves to be king. He, he healed me from leprosy. You have others who are coming and saying, you won't believe it. I saw Lazarus was raised from the dead. He'd been in the grave for four days. And they're cheering. They're saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is the king of Israel. They're, they're wanting for Jesus to become king. But in that moment, when people are glorifying who Jesus is, they're saying, God is so good. Somebody is not happy. Look at John chapter 12 and verse 19. The end of the triumphal entry, the Pharisees are seeing all that's happening, and look at what they say. The Pharisees, therefore, said among themselves, you see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. See, our plans are foiled. It's not working to quench what this guy is doing. The whole world is going after him. They're trying to crown him king. It's not working to stop him. Now let me ask you a question. At this point, is the entire world going after Jesus? Here's a fascinating thing. I want to put a, a picture up to show you the spear of Jesus' ministry. We're going to put up a picture of the Roman Empire. This is the Roman Empire in the first century uh, up to 117 AD. You'll see the different colors are there for different periods in the Roman Empire as it expanded. But the time when Jesus was, was on this, this earth was the time when you had the orange part as the, the Roman Empire. And there you see that little tiny circle down. You can barely see it, the red little circle down on the bottom right-hand side of this map. That represents where Jesus spent 33 years of his life. They estimate that he never traveled more than two. I mean, we don't know for sure. We don't know what he did as a child. We know that he went to Egypt, which you see Egypt is down there. So, so we should expand the circle a little bit, right? Because we could have that little trip down to Egypt when he was uh, just a, a tiny baby. But besides that, they estimate that he never went outside of that 200-mile radius, and that probably included his trip to Egypt. You have this vast world out there, and here they are saying, the whole world is going after Jesus. Is this really true? Is the world going after Jesus? Or is it just a few people there in Jerusalem? Who was it that came up to the Passover anyway? Well, John actually wants us to think about this. He's intentionally told us that the Pharisees are saying this about the whole world going after Jesus because he wants to tell us a little story. Look at what he goes on to say in verse 20. Now there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. So who's with them there at the feast? Certain Greeks. And the word in Greek here isn't Hellenist, as in the Jews who had gone out in the diaspora, but these are actually Greeks who must have maybe become proselytes, or they, maybe they're just curious. We don't know exactly why they're there, but it says certain Greeks came among them. And what did they come to do? They came up to worship at the feast. Greeks. Now where is Greece? Let's put up on the map where Greece actually is, just to give us a little perspective to think about the, the world that's out there. So 
here's where we have Palestine, where Jesus was, and then we'll put up the next slide that has, that's where Greece was. These men had traveled all the way from Greece to come to the Passover. What do you think it was that drove them, that drew them to this tiny little city, Jerusalem, in order to worship a God that they were not very familiar with? I mean, in Greece, you had all of these magnificent structures to the gods. You had many different gods that you could choose to worship. And they did everything possible to appease different gods. They had great philosophers. They had all of these things in Greece. Why go to Jerusalem in order to worship at some little temple on some little hill in Jerusalem? And that journey would have cost them a lot. There's a a fascinating website that you can actually go to. You go there this afternoon. I'll put the next slide up, which on this next slide, you'll see orbis.stanford.edu. It's it's a little hard to see there, but orbis.stanford.edu has done something helpful for us. Stanford has put together this website where you can actually go on the website. You can put in the place that you like to travel from and to in the Roman Empire in the first century. And then it will estimate how much of the time you need to spend on the ship, how much time you needed to, to travel, and, and how much it would cost you to travel all that distance. So I did a little research on what it would take to travel from Greece. I said, let's go from Corinth, because that was a, a, a major place in Greece. Let's say going from Corinth to Jerusalem. That was about a thousand miles that they had traveled to worship at the Passover. They've traveled about 1,000 miles, and this would cost close to 300 to 400 denarii, which is about a day's wages. And if you do that with California minimum wage, and you multiply that out on the low side, we're probably talking about $30,000 that they spend in order to make this epic journey to go to Jerusalem. What drew them? What was it that was drawing them to come and worship at this foreign place, to to worship this foreign God that they didn't have a clear concept of? Or maybe they did have a clear concept. Maybe the the Jewish proselytes had had shared with them. Maybe the, the Jews who had spread out throughout the diaspora had shared with them. And maybe that was what compelled them to come. We don't know all the reasons why. But the story goes on in verse 21. Verse 21 says, Then they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him. Now it's interesting because Philip is a Greek name, actually. And the two people that they specifically interact with in the story are people that we assume maybe of the disciples who might have had a Greek background. So they come to Philip. And the reason that they probably did this was when you came to the temple... You didn't get to go all the way into the temple if you were Greek, but instead you had to stay in the outer court. Jesus apparently may have been in the inner court, so they couldn't go directly to Jesus and say whatever they wanted to say to Jesus. But notice what these men say. And friends, this is what it's all about. What these men did, what they did on this journey and who they came to see is everything to you and to me this morning. The title of the sermon, by the way, is Wise Men from the West. Did you know that there were wise men that came from the West? We talk at Christmas about the wise men who came from the East, who came to see Jesus when he was born, but there were actually wise men who came 
from the west to see who Jesus was. And look at what they ask. They ask Philip, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Friends, more and more that's becoming the cry of my heart. More and more I'm realizing that this matters more than anything else. To see Jesus. To recognize who God really is. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And if we can come to a recognition of who God is through looking to Jesus, then that can transform every part of our lives. So here they come to Jesus and they say, Sir, we would see Jesus. And Philip comes and he tells Andrew and in turn, Andrew comes to Philip and he tells Jesus. Can you imagine that you're Jesus and you're there in the, the inner court of the temple. Your disciples come and they say, hey, we've got men here who they want to talk to you and they want to see you. Jesus has experienced rejection over the past few days. We estimate that this might be Tuesday. He's going to the cross on, Thursday, on Friday. And little by little, the Jews have been rejecting him throughout this week. He's experiencing the fact that they're not going to accept him. He's been weeping over Jerusalem and the fact that they won't embrace his desire to minister to them. So as they come to him, imagine what this could do to Jesus. Imagine the temptation even in this. As people come and say, hey, there are these people and they've come all the way from Greece. They've traveled and they've spent $30,000 to get to see you. They've come all this distance and they want simply to see you. Jesus has been wanting for somebody to embrace his ministry. He's been hoping that, that somebody will grab a hold of who he is and what he's come to do. And person after person has rejected him and the Pharisees are rejecting him. They're wanting to put him to death. And here comes somebody from Greece who's wanting to see him. If you're Jesus, what would you do in that moment? If, if, if somebody came to you and said, I want to know what you're all about. I'll just tell you honestly, if, I, if I'm Jesus and I'm a pastor and I'm thinking, okay, let's say that I'm here one day preaching and it's, it's just another Sabbath and we're talking and all of a sudden through the back doors comes somebody from Timbuktu. There's actually literally a place named Timbuktu and they come through and they talk to me and they say, hey, We've heard what God is doing in Templeton, and we desperately need for you to come to Timbuktu in order to tell us more about it. There are thousands of people who are just waiting there. Would you get some of your church together, and would you come on a mission trip? Would you help us out? What do you do? I would instantly say, okay, let's get a group together. Let's do some fundraising. Let's do a mission trip. We could go to Timbuktu. They need us. They want to see what we're all about. You think that might have crossed through Jesus' mind? Hey, I haven't ever gone more than 200 miles from this place, and people just keep rejecting me. Maybe it would go better in Greece. Maybe people in Greece would be a little happier to, to be experiencing my ministry. Maybe they would actually accept me and not turn away from me. Maybe they would recognize that I represent the Father. Maybe I should go to Greece. They want to see who I am. They want for me to come. But look at what Jesus goes on to say. In verse 23, But Jesus answered them, saying, and at first it sounds like he's 
going right along with what they're wanting. The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Maybe his disciples are thinking, yes, this is great. Jesus finally gets it. He allowed the people to praise him as he came into Jerusalem, and now he's going to let even the people in Greece know that he is now the King of Israel. Finally, Jesus gets it. He's going to proclaim himself Messiah. This is a fantastic day. Imagine the disciples are so excited. But look at what he says in verse 24. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. I don't know how many of you are farmers and understand what this is all about, but just to give us a mental picture, I want to put a couple pictures up here. I want you just to imagine a grain of wheat. We'll put a little picture of a grain of wheat here. Now, what are some of the things that you could do if you had a handful of grain of wheat or you had a, a, some, some wheat? What could you do with that grain? You could grind it. What would you do with it after you ground it? You could eat it, right? You could... You could take that and use it for food. And that was what they often did. But Jesus uses a simile. He says, take unless a grain of wheat is separated from the food that's going to be eaten and it's cast into the ground and dies. It loses its shape. It's no longer just that grain anymore. It, it's no longer good for making bread with. That, that grain of wheat no longer will be something that that somebody could grind and make bread with. Unless that grain falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But, it says, if it's thrown into the ground, what begins to happen? I've recently been sprouting some lentils, and it's fascinating to watch what happens. Did you know that all those little seeds and beans and things you have at home, they'll grow if you put them with water? Well, when you seemingly waste that seed and you throw it into the ground and it gets the water and the sunlight that it needs, something incredible begins to happen. Jesus is saying, look, something needs to happen through my death. How I'm going to be glorified in this hour when I am going to be glorified, it's going to happen through me humbling myself a little bit lower, a little bit lower, and a little bit lower to the point of death on a cross. And as that wheat were to grow, we would see eventually that the wheat would multiply and it would have an abundant harvest and it would multiply many times over. And that's what Jesus says. If if the wheat is willing to die, if it's willing not to look out for itself, if it's willing not to seek its own priorities first, then and only then will a miraculous revival happen Will a transformation happen? The revival that we seek won't happen by me going off to Greece and preaching to the people in Greece. But the miracle will happen in just a few days as I go to the cross. If you doubt that that's what he's thinking, jump down to verse 27 of John chapter 12. John chapter 12 and verse 27, right after talking about this grain falling into the ground and if somebody loves their life, that they'll lose it, but if they lose their life, that they'll gain it for eternal life. Verse 27, Jesus says this. He's contemplating 
all that's going to happen to him in the next three to four days. He's contemplating the weight of the world is going to press down on him. He's contemplating your sin and my sin. That he wants to take that on himself for your sake. Because he can't stand the thought of being alone without you throughout eternity. Verse 27, now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? What purpose should I pursue? Jesus had an option at this point, didn't he? He had the option to dust off his hands and to say, I'm walking away from this group who keeps rejecting me. Or he had the option in that moment to choose to give up his own life because he loved you. To choose the path of unselfishness. Should I say, Father, save me? This was the temptation that came to him again and again on the cross. Save yourself. Save yourself if you're really the king of the Jews. Save yourself. But Jesus refused. Because that's not who God is. You see, this is about something bigger even than what's happening right there in Jerusalem. It's something bigger even than what happens with you and me. Just look at what Jesus goes on to say. Down in verse 31, he says, Now is the judgment of this world. Meaning that that when this unselfishness is revealed, it's going to be shocking to the world. It's going to be transformational to the world. The whole world is going to see that it's not all about just what I can get, what I can gain, what I can pull into my own self. But they're going to see the principle of unselfishness is what the universe is based on. The principle of unselfish, self-giving love. Now is the judgment of this world. And then he goes on to say, now the ruler of this world will be cast out. In this moment when selfishness is triumphed over by unselfishness, when Jesus lays down his life, when he goes to the point on the cross where he feels utterly forsaken, like God has completely left him, and he chooses to continue to the point of laying down his life with no hope, of a future, with a realization that that this could be the end for him. He stared death in the face, and he thought about you. Sitting here in Templeton Hills maybe today, and he thought about the life that he wanted for you to have. And he said, I would rather that they live than that I live. I would rather for them to have a happy life. I would rather lay down my life for them so that they could have life. I would rather they live than that I live. That is the God of the universe. And look at what it goes on to say. What Jesus says immediately after this is so powerful. Don't miss this. Verse 32. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. If I'm lifted up, everyone will be drawn. The only question is, will they come? Will they accept this incredible gift that I have to offer them? I love how he goes through the rest of this. He's, here he's talking about this great controversy. In fact, I want to read something really quickly from uh, the book Education. It talks about this overall principle of unselfishness versus selfishness. In Education, page 154, it says, Unselfishness, the principle of God's kingdom, is the principle that Satan hates. You notice that it was through the cross that the ruler of this world was cast out. 
its very existence he denies. You know, there's a lot of people today who say the same exact thing, who say you can't really do something out of complete unselfishness. Evolution is based on this principle that we always seek to survive. Satan denies the existence of unselfishness. From the beginning of the great controversy, he has endeavored to prove God's principles of action to be selfish. He pointed to God and said, he's selfish. Why can't I be selfish? I know better than he does. I know better than his law of love. I think that we can live selfish lives and we can be happy in the end. And the cross of Jesus Christ demonstrates that that's not who God is. God is not a God of selfishness. God didn't give us a law in order to make our lives difficult. But God gave us a law because he wanted us to be happy. Because he loved us. Because he wanted us to experience the joy of unselfish giving love. goes on to say, to disprove Satan's claim is the work of Christ. It was, given in, it was to give his own life in an illustration of unselfishness that Jesus came in the form of humanity. If I am lifted up, Jesus promises, I will draw all to myself. You know what's really cool? In that verse, it actually doesn't say people there. It doesn't say men there. It just says all. And in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 20, we won't go there right now, but Paul actually describes the reality that Jesus is talking about. He says, through the cross, all have been reconciled in heaven and on earth. The whole universe has been reconciled to God, has been drawn to God through this one demonstration that this is the reality of who God is, that he loves us more than he loves himself, that he would do us good at the expense of his good. If it were possible for him not to exist and us to exist, he would gladly give us that opportunity. That is what the cross of Jesus Christ says. And you see down in verse 45 of chapter 22, Jesus says really clearly that this isn't just about what I am doing, but this is about what the Father is and who he wants for you to see that he is. In verse 45, it says, And he who sees me sees him who sent me. He wants clearly for us to understand that, that what I'm about to do in going to the cross, in displaying my love, my unselfish love, that is just to show you who the Father is. And recognizing that changes absolutely everything in our lives. Down in verse 50, he's talking about his Father and what his Father's heart is. Let this sink in deep this morning. Verse 50 says, And I know that his command is everlasting life. Did you know that that's what God's desire is for you? That that's what God's command is for you? The only way that you cannot get to heaven is to resist what the almighty, infinite God of the universe wants to do in your heart and in your life. In the book Steps to Christ, it says it like this, the sinner may resist this love. They may refuse to be drawn to Christ. But if he does not resist, he will be drawn to Jesus. Each and every one of us are drawn by this type of love. And I know that for a fact, not just because it's 
we're told that in the Bible, not just because authors about the Bible have written that and told us that, but I know because when I read a story about a guy like Jamie driving his daughter through a fire, I know that I'm compelled by somebody who shows that kind of love. We see it whenever we see a story about somebody that's willing to give their life for somebody. It's compelling. It draws us. It gives us inspiration. And here we're talking about somebody who's just willing to give up their physical life. But that morning started like any other morning for Jamie. He didn't realize the catastrophe that would hit. But when he was at work and his daughter was there with him at work for one reason or another, I'm not sure why, I read the article in the San Francisco Chronicle, some fascinating stories about different people that escaped from the the Paradise Fires. But Jamie was there at this transitional care facility there in Paradise trying to rescue all of these patients and to get them out. They're elderly patients. They're there in this care facility. The fire is closing in all around them. And they're trying to figure out how they're going to get these people out. They had a backup plan. They were going to take everybody into the showers. They were going to close things in as much as possible. And they now know that that would have been a fateful option because the, the, the entire place was obliterated. But thankfully, some of the medical vans were actually able to uh, ambulances and things were able to navigate through the fires to drive all the way to this care facility in order to get in there. Everybody else is heading the opposite direction. They said there were lanes of traffic coming in both directions against them because everybody's trying desperately to get out of there. And here they are trying to go in. And they go in and they get to the place and they begin to carry people out. And finally, when they have evacuated all of the employees, all of the patients, there was about 250 people that had to be crammed into people's cars to be put in these vans in order to get them out of there to escape this fire. Finally, he saw that everybody was gone from his work and he raced to the lobby and there was his little daughter, his seven-year-old daughter. He said, come on, let's get in the car. And he took her and he ran to the car, buckled her in in the back seat and they began to drive for all they're worth, trying to escape from the fire. I just wanted to put up a little video clip. It's actually of another father who's escaping from the fire. Just to give you a a picture of what it's like to be trying to escape from this massive fire that's closing in on all sides. His taillights ended up melting on his car. And as he's going through, you can see how the traffic just began to pile up in the road. People were bumping into each other. Accidents were happening all over the place. And as he's racing, trying to get away from the fire he begins to realize that they're not going to be able to drive through this. Finally, they come to a place where all of the cars are stopped and police officers are out there and they begin to yell and they begin to say, you've got to get out of the car and we've just got to run for it. By that point, he'd already put a a sweatshirt around his daughter's head so that she wouldn't breathe in as much smoke. He pulls that sweatshirt off of her face and he sees that scared look because his daughter looks into his eyes and says, Daddy... Am I going to die? What does that do to the heart of a father? What does that do to the heart of a loving God who is love? And that dad, in that moment, he said, I didn't know what to say. I didn't want to give her a false hope. But all I knew was what I was willing to do. And so he said this, Look at me. You aren't going to die. Even if I have to carry you myself off this hill, I will lay down my life for you. And what greater assurance could you have, really, than somebody that says, I would lay down my life for you. 
That's who your God is. You can trust Him. You can trust what He's given you in His Word. You can look to Him and you can trust Him. In fact, the cross of Christ, the Review and Herald says this about the cross of Christ. It says, The cross of Calvary is an eternal pledge to every one of us that God wants us to be happy. Not only in the future life, but in this life. The cross of Jesus Christ tells us that a God of love has written these things. And friends, if you've gone to the Bible before and you haven't seen a God of love there, I just want to tell you, go back to it again and read the Bible through the filter of the cross. Because this is how we see who God is. And we have to read every story, every line through the filter of the cross and say, He's a God of love. A God who would rather die on my behalf if it were possible. He went to the cross for me. That is how I have to come to Scripture. Every line, every verse, every chapter tells me about this God of love. And friends, I want to make a renewed commitment to reading my Bible, looking for that God. For taking time every morning to say, God, would you show me your love a little more clearly? Would you reveal more clearly? In this passage, I don't understand how you're a God of love here, but would you show that to me? Would you reveal it to me? Because this, my friends, is what it's all about. Would you just bow your heads with me? And I just want to invite you in the silence of your own hearts just to to ask God to help you to see him more clearly. I don't know what your experience has been. Maybe you have a great experience with God. You have an experience of seeing his love. And I just want to ask you to ask him to show you his love a little more deeply. To let it sink in a little more clearly. But maybe today you're thinking, yeah, I tried that once. Or no, I've never really even cracked my Bible. I just want you to give Jesus an honest invitation to draw you to himself to give you a hunger for his word, to give you a desire just to to be saturated with his love as is found in the Bible. Just take a moment, just you and Jesus, and say, Jesus, this has got to be real. This world is too crazy. Would you give me a hunger for your word? Would you give me a hunger to see your love through your word? Would you help me to see that I can trust you? I really can trust you. Thank you, Jesus, that the cross is an eternal pledge that you want for us to be happy. And we can trust that every single command, every single instruction that you've given us is only there for our good because you want for our lives to be better. God, I for one just want to say I'm sorry. Sorry that I worry. I'm sorry that I don't trust you. I'm sorry that I forget who you are. And that your command is everlasting life. That your desire is that if I won't resist, that you will save me in your kingdom. Lord God, I just want to accept that precious gift this morning. And I want to pray for each of my friends as they recommit, as they re-accept that incredible love. That you would bless them to see your love more and more clearly each and every day. That you bless them to read the Bible with a hunger to see your love. Father, bless us as we go from this place. May we have the heart of the wise men from the West that we just want to see Jesus. That's our desire. Would you show us all of your glory, all of your beauty, and all of your love. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.